Welcome to the Books Talk podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. This program is a recording of a book talk presented virtually on February 19, 2021. Lane from the Gear Branch Library discusses nonfiction books about weird history. My name is Lane. I work at the Gear Branch Library, and uh, my book talk focus today is on weird history or uh, stranger than fiction, nonfiction which is a very broad, wide category. Uh, So this list is focused on a couple of things and you'll find mostly it's about scams or thieves or heists, stuff like that. I did try to keep it a little lighter. Um, There's a lot of good true crime and really cool, um, interesting history, but it's about terrible murders or kidnappings or Um, things that I would uh, lightly consider a bummer, which I don't think any of us really need more depressing things in the world right now. So if we could at least get a little laugh or a little smile, or at least, oh, that's weird, um, in a good way out of it, that's sort of what I was going for. Uh, That being said, there are, you know, there's some weird stuff. And so I will try to address (laughs) those issues. One of the reasons that I wanted to do this, though, was because I think I study history. History is one of my favorite topics, and I think it's so important, especially now in this time of uncertainty, uh, a lot of upheaval. There's a lot of major world events happening uh, seemingly all at once, Um, and I think now is a really great time to take a moment and reflect on history and try to learn from history and see if we can get some insight about how we can go forward and maybe take some warnings along with us. But there's about 20 books on the list. Uh, I mentioned earlier, the initial list was over 100. So I really had to narrow it down. And I've got history from way back until something more modern. Um, And I mean like really modern, like 2015, 2018, um, very recent. So current events, history, the line gets blurred. We're living in history, you know. A lot of the books on here too are sort of compilations, anthologies, where you get multiple stories or multiple accounts um, in one book. So for instance, uh, what might, Probably one of my favorite books on this list is going to be Sawbones, The Horrifying Hilarious Road to Modern Medicine. Um, And that is by Dr. Sydney McElroy and her husband, Justin McElroy. They also have a podcast of the same name called Sawbones, A Marital Tour of Misguided Medicine, where they talk about medical history. Sydney is a doctor. She's a general practice doctor. Um, So she does have that medical experience with her and she does talk about how certain medical innovations have progressed throughout time and how people still use those today in hospitals, which is a great insight. Also, they're both hilarious. So if you know anything about medical history, you'll know that we as humans have come a long way, especially recently. And very early on, our medical knowledge was basically like throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. And there were some really wild things we've tried for medicine throughout history. 
most people know about things, you know, like bloodletting or leeches, um, that four humoral system of medicine back in medieval times where they were like, your bile is out of balance. So tape a chicken to your chest and that will, you know, cure your boils because of course it would, why wouldn't it? And so Sawbones uh, goes into various pieces of medical history, a lot of which you might not know um, unless you have studied medical history before, and a lot of which are upsettingly close to things that people are still doing today, uh, which is another reason why I think medical history especially is a great thing to look at right now, because in this world of COVID and uncertainty and everyone's worried about getting sick and about staying healthy, we're very prone to misinformation right now. We've kind of entered into this new age of snake oil salesmen. So people making fake medicines or fake cures or claiming that they have the answer to be able to keep you healthy, keep your family healthy. And they're using the exact same strategies as snake, these snake oil salesmen did back in the 1800s back in, you know, the early twenties when there wasn't any regulation, it's the same scam basically. And so I think looking at medical history and realizing some of those tactics, I think that's something that's super important right now. And Sawbones delivers this information in a way that is so fun to read. It is comedic. It is funny. There are illustrations that are brilliant. There's a uh, commentary so you don't have to be a doctor to read this. You don't have to have a medical background to read this. It is all in layman's terms. It is very easy to understand and it's super accessible. And again, Sawbones, they also have a podcast that goes with it, which I will always recommend. It's one of my favorite shows. And kind of transitioning uh, from that, originally this list had a lot more medical history on it because I love medical history. I took those off and replaced them with other things. But if I could definitely do a medical history book talk all in of itself. But kind of going off of that, I've got another book on here called The Poisoner's Handbook, Murder and the Birth of Forensic Medicine in Jazz Age New York. This is one of my, I'm going to keep saying this is my favorite book, but this is one of my favorite books um, by Deborah Bloom, uh, who's a fantastic writer, fantastic creative nonfiction this book is about the birth of forensic science in 1920s New York City and follows sort of the first cases where they really used forensic chemistry and forensic science in order to solve this high profile murder case in New York, which is something that's never been done before. In the 1920s, we're getting new techniques. We've been able to study science. We've had more advanced scientific technique. And this is not mainstream yet. This is mostly just people at universities. And so this is um, one of the, the story of how we brought police into the laboratory and started scientifically investigating. Like Sawbones, you don't have to be a scientist to understand this. I'm not a scientist. I got like a C plus in chemistry in high school. And that's about as much as I know. It's so fun to read. You feel like you are reading like a thriller, like a crime thriller, a mystery novel. Um, but it's all real. It's all nonfiction. And it, it goes into uh, 
this case and it's a poisoning case um, because before forensic science, if you poison someone, you could pretty much just get away with it because there's no way, you know, the police or the investigators would be able to tell. They'd be like, oh, that guy sure got poisoned. Shucks, you know. And so this was really an advent of crime and of like criminal justice and forensic science in America. So if you have if you like those kind of crime novels, if you like those uh, detective mysteries, I would definitely recommend this as a really good nonfiction book that echoes that same style. I also love the 1920s. It's one of my favorite periods in history for a myriad of reasons, but the Roaring Twenties is a great place, especially if you're into crime and you're into true crime. Um, It's a great era to study, which brings me to the next book um, I want to talk about. If I also, I tend to go fast and talk a lot. So if you ever want me to slow down and talk about something or go back to something, just let me know. (laughs) So uh, the Girls of Murder City, Fame, Lust, and the Beautiful Killers Who Inspired Chicago by Douglas Perry. Are you all familiar with the musical Chicago? If you aren't, you should definitely look it up. It's one of my favorite musicals of all time. It's one of the longest running shows on Broadway. It's won numerous Tonys and Oscars and all that good stuff too. Um, Chicago's amazing. Uh, It's a great musical, but what makes it even better is, and what a lot of people don't realize is that it's actually based off true stories. Um, In 1920s Chicago, there were these female murderesses and they got swept up in this media sensationalism where everyone was just enamored with these pretty girls who killed men and it was very glamorous and it was very scandalous and riveting and so you get all of these jazz age newspapers and media who are turning these murderers, these female murderers into celebrities. And there's one reporter who's a female reporter and she's covering this. And uh, she's the character in the musical um, is the female reporter, Sunny. Uh, She's based off this actual real life woman um, who reported on these cases and studied them and wrote about them. And she actually penned the original Chicago uh, stage play before it was a musical. Um, And then it got turned into a musical that we know and love today. And something that's interesting about that is that she, the reporter herself, she was very religiously conservative. She put a big emphasis on like traditional family values and on basically against everything that, you know, these women stand for jazz and liquor and murder, obviously. (laughs) So when Chicago turned into this, it was, it's very glamorous, this very glamorous image of these women who are doing murders and this sinful jazz age Chicago. And she hated it. She hated what Chicago turned into because it was a celebration of all of the things she was trying to um, point out as bad which we obviously uh, is another important lesson in history is 
you know, um, to quote Hamilton, who lives, who dies, who tells your story, where we can't always control the narrative the way we want. Sometimes it gets out and sometimes, and most times people will have their own interpretation and take their own spin and interpret it as they want. So Girls of Murder City, besides being an awesome story and besides being uh, the history behind one of my favorite musicals, it's also, I think, an excellent example of this sort of idea that a narrative can change and that you need to be aware of who's telling the story, for what purpose are they telling the story, and um, what do they want you, the audience, to believe. And it's a very good practical example of all of those things sort of spiraling out of control, which is, of course, a lesson I think we can apply today as well, especially when there's a new book coming out every two days about whatever is going on, you know, politically right now, or what's ever going on in world politics right now. There's all of this information. And so being aware of this sort of sensationalism that we can fall prey to, I think it's very important, which actually is a great transition into a next, the next book here, um, which is The Invention of Murder, How the Victorians Reveled in Death and Detection and Created Modern Crime by Judith Flanders. So this one, similar to uh, Poisoner's Handbook and Girls of Murder City, this is about uh, true crime and it's about how society reacts and consumes true crime. And basically, um, so the if you know anything about history or what I've taken from history is that the Victorians were weird. They're just really weird about most things. Victorian medicine is ridiculous. Victorian literature is a whole spectrum of study. But one thing that uh, the Victorians were really into was death. Victorian death culture was so unique and it was so prevalent, um, especially within these larger cities like London or Edinburgh. And what happens during especially like the mid to late Victorian period is this invent invention or not so much invention, but escalation and increased commonality of crime media, uh, sensationalized crime and sensationalized murder. And you of course got things like Jack the Ripper, um, which takes London by storm and takes the world by storm. And we still talk about Jack the Ripper today. Um, but with this, in the mid 1800s, you get this revitalization of industrial press. So um, newspapers go from printing maybe 500 pages a day to printing 5,000, 50,000 copies of a newspaper per day. Um, you're getting this news out to the people and you want it to be entertaining. And so you get this sensationalized crime journalism that is obsessed with death and is obsessed with murder and is obsessed with the terrible things human beings do to each other and is going to paste it across every newspaper in every shop window and every book and it's it also influenced because the newspapers were doing this that the police who are trying to catch these murderers now suddenly had to deal with not only doing an investigation, but also for the first time having to deal with a press, um, having to deal with media who are 
situating themselves as sort of like judge and jury for these criminals and declaring them relevant and interesting and of value to the public because they keep writing about them. And a lot of people feel, especially the police feel that this is encouraging people to do more crimes because it's a way to get famous now. It's a way to become a celebrity, is to become a murderer. And I think, again, this is something that uh, this started with the Victorians, but I mean, we have entire channels devoted to true crime now on TV. There's countless podcasts, YouTube videos, books, everything else. We've never stopped being into gruesome crimes. And I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. I mean, I read true crime books. I'm sure some of you read true crime books or watch the TV shows, um, listen to the podcasts. But it's, I think, a very interesting phenomenon. And it really came into popularity, into the public eye in the 1800s. And also that, again, um, a trial by media, where these newspapers, these journalists suddenly have so much power over the public opinion that it has an effect, whether you want to argue if it's at first or not, on investigating crime and um, investigative journalism. And when you read stories today about how a, you know, 50-year-old cold case got solved by a couple of kids on Reddit or something like that, because they just these internet sleuths will uh, find things out. And I think it's something that um, it's really interesting, but we should also be aware of because you do get these cases of the internet decides somebody is guilty and they're not. And this person gets prosecuted and destroyed and their life crumbles when they didn't do anything except happen to be the target of an internet like hate campaign. Again, it's a really important lesson again about being aware of the influence of media, the influence of like the bias that is present. And again, how we, how easily we are swayed by the sort of sensationalism. And what happens too, is that you get these stories and at the end of all of these stories and within all of these books as well, there are plenty of bad guys because let's be honest, bad people are fun to read about, but there's also the people working opposite of them. They're the people who are working for justice. There's the genuine like law enforcement officers or detectives who do genuinely want to find and deliver justice. There are these forensic scientists working in the lab trying to advance scientific understanding so that we can progress and so that these crimes can't happen again. There is always that silver lining, that speck of hope, oh, sure. which I think is equally important too. Oh, sure. Um, and uh, one thing that I love to read about, it's a special interest of mine, but I love reading about like religious cults, which I mean, it never ends well. <laughs> it's a cult, right? Um, you know, the it's not going to necessarily have a happy ending on that one. But I think being able to understand why people get into those and why we're interested in those sort of things. Um, conspiracy. Uh, and uh, with conspiracies, too, um, and that goes back again to all of these, uh, the sensationalist media, this journalism, 
conspiracies are always more fun to believe than the truth because conspiracies are exciting. It makes you feel like you're in on something. It makes you feel like you figured something out. A lot of the time, it's easier to accept a conspiracy theory than to accept the fact that things in the world just are sort of wrong with this, that there's some force working behind the scenes to make things the way that they are instead of the acceptance of maybe we did this to ourselves or maybe this is you know how things are and then we can change it like that but again especially now there's so many people who are embracing conspiracy theories and who are choosing to look at conspiracy theories because it's easier to accept a conspiracy than it is the truth and with these strange history books um, stranger than fiction, I think that's also why it's important to look at because weird things happen every single day. Things we can't believe, things we don't want to believe, things that seem impossible or improbable, these are happening every day around us. And acknowledging that these things are able to happen, I think, allows us to go further to addressing those problems or to finding out a solution for those problems. So I think, again, that's why, and I'll, I'll probably keep coming back to this, but um, right now I think it's so important to look at history because there's so many lessons that we can learn and that we have learned and that we just seem to forget about or that you've never been, you didn't get taught in school, um, you've never heard about something before, but it's all still going on. And so um, I think even if, you know, you're reading about the Victorians or you're reading about 1920s Chicago, these are still all about fundamentally humans and humans, whether you're in Victorian London or you're in 2021 Lincoln, Nebraska, we still have those common features of humanity, which is why history applies to all of us, not just one geographical location or one ethnic group or one culture or one religion we're all humans and we all have something to learn from human yep. history. Okay, we can take a slight diversion here into something a bit less <laughs> profound and a little more fun, which is The Last Job, The Bad Grandpas and the Hatton Garden Heist by Dan Bilefsky. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, if you haven't, this happened, this is one of those modern ones. Um, this happened in 2015. The Hatton Garden Heist uh, happened over a four-day banking holiday in London. It was one of the uh, biggest heists in terms of things they stole. And besides being an incredible story or an incredible heist in of itself, um, where these men broke into this bank. They used a drill to literally drill a hole through the safe. And nobody noticed, which is the other thing. Um, they basically completely got away with this while it happened. But all four, um, six, sorry, uh, four of them were caught. Four of them were caught. Two of them got arrested, but didn't get charged. Um, but it was six men and they were all professional thieves who were at that point essentially retired. The 
average age of these men was around 68 years old. Uh, and so, which was another reason why they probably got away with it, uh, because no one saw these older gentlemen hanging around and thought that, oh, these guys are doing a heist right now. And it's just, uh, I love heists. I love heist movies. Um, I love seeing them get the gang together. And I love, you know, walking through the reveal of, oh, this is how everything ties together. Uh, and so when you see it in real life, and especially like, in this, this case, and I'm not trying to advocate for crime, obviously, but in this case, you know, no one's getting shot, no one's getting murdered, no one's getting actively harmed. They're just robbing a bank and doing so in a way that you really wouldn't think would work. Um, and they should have gotten noticed and they didn't, but it's it reads like, uh, a comedy heist movie. It honestly does. And there's this air of absurdism over the whole thing that has to make you laugh. And you definitely, at least I could imagine meeting all of these guys. Like these are the guys, you know, that are having a beer with their buddies and they're joking about the good old days. And actually they're all professional thieves and are stealing 14 million pounds worth of jewels out of a safe. Well, you know, they talk about the football score and what their grandkids are doing. They talk about how like the getaway driver um, has a tendency to accidentally fall asleep at the wheel while he waits. So they had to make sure that they the getaway driver was actually awake and ready when they were ready to go. Um, they had to bring in chairs to sit while they worked the drill because they couldn't, you know, be on their knees or be standing up for too long. And it's just, again, it, it reads like a comedy action thriller, but it's all true and it's all fantastic. And Dan Bilefsky, the author, he really does embrace that sort of absurdity that is inherent to this story. And they did make a movie out of this. Um, I think there's actually, since this happened, there have been two movies um, that have been made as well as an episode, a documentary episode um, about the heist as well. So there's other media related to this that you can look into as well. Probably my favorite heist story of all time. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> and again, it's just, it's just fun. And it's just something that is so, un it's one of those things that it, it makes you happy that this happened in real life, that we live in a world where this sort of thing, like, yeah, all the terrible stuff is happening, but did you hear about the grandpa heist? And again, four of the gentlemen, they did get caught and arrested. Um, and, you know, I haven't watched that trial, but I'd love to look it up sometime. I have not watched the movie. I did watch the TV show episode, um, which was on a show called The White Rabbit Project on Netflix. Um, mm. The movie came out in 2015, or not 2015, 2018, I think. Movie What's here. the name of it? Um, it's called the Hatton H-A-T-T-O-N Garden Job uh, and it looks like yep that one came out in 2017 I always like recommending you know a, a book and a movie together or a book and a TV show together there's alternative media it's fun to explore so that was again the uh, 
the la the book is called The Last Job, The Bad Grandpas and the Hatton, H-A-T-T-O-N, Garden Heist. So uh, with that, um, as far as things that have, I lost my notes here, um, alternative media, another more recent one, and this is in like the 80s, 70s, 80s um, era, it's called Action Park, Fast Times, Wild Rides, and the Untold Story of America's Most Dangerous Amusement Park by Andy Mulville. I don't know if any of you grew up around New Jersey or New York, um, if anyone's a transplant here, uh, you might have heard of Action Park before. It was an amusement park, a water park that existed in this small town in New Jersey, but it was the only amusement park really of any sort that um, was adjacent or close to New York or New York City. Kids um, would come and, you know, visit because again, action park, adventure park, water park, good times. The thing about action park was that it was developed in the 1950s and it was not developed by professionals. It was not designed by people who had experience designing parks. Um, the rides weren't designed to uh, be safe in any way. Um, so Action Park got this reputation of being the most dangerous theme park in America. Um, and it got the name class, the nickname Class Action Park because so many people got injured here and so many people got consistently hurt that this park was basically always getting sued. It managed to stay open as long as it did because the owner, again, it's a very small town where this park uh, took place in. And the owner of this park would basically bribe every member of city council and the head of the police and the mayor um, to let him keep his park open, despite the fact that pretty much everyone else in town hated it because of its terrible reputation. Famously, there's a corkscrew water slide that people would hit the bottom and then get stuck in the top or uh, like hit their neck or hit their head as they go through this loop. And people died in this park because it was so dangerous. Um, it was run essentially by teenagers. All of the staff were kids. There were no, uh, literally no adults supervising. Um, they also sold alcohol and the alcohol sales were right next to the um, go-kart racing. So great combination. Um, and there's so much that goes into Action Park as far as just stories and the politics and the fight to get this park under control in some way. And it does turn into this um, federal issue where like the FBI has to come and investigate this park because what on earth is going on? There is very recently uh, on HBO, but it is called Class Action Park. And it's an excellent documentary um, about Action Park as told through people who went there. Um, they interview the family of some of the victims who died at Class Action Park. They interview former employees. The book itself is written by the son of the original owner. 
So he does have, is trying to sort of clean his family's reputation for owning this park. But there is that, you know, you can't deny what it is. There is that sort of awareness of it. And people were at all points aware of how dangerous it were. It was, but it did become a rite of passage for a lot of teenagers in that area. Like I survived Action Park. Um, you'd come back to school and you'd have your arm in a cast and, you know, bruises all over your legs. And you're like, oh, you went to Action Park this weekend, right? Cool. So I think that too does speak of the sort of attitude of the 19, especially like the 1980s and kids in the 1980s, teenagers, and really encapsulates that spirit of that, you know, American 80s teenage summer. It's just wild, especially like if you've been to Disney World and that's the only amusement park you know to hear about Action Park. It's just, there's always more to it. And I just could not stop reading about it. And I loved watching the documentary and looking up everything I could. It's just so fun to watch um, and read. Um, we are at the end here of our session. Um, so thank you all for listening to me ramble about weird history and nonfiction. Again, there's about 20 books here on this list. And all of them are, of course, available through Lincoln City Libraries. But I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you've got a couple <laughs> of new titles or at least a couple of new rabbit holes to try going down. Thank you, Lane. Thank you guys so much. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. You can find a wide selection of our podcasts of book talks and other programs at lincolnlibraries.org slash category slash podcasts.